All right, I'm on. Good. Okay, once again, in the book of Acts, we're going to be in chapter 4. I'll give you the verse here in just a moment. But going back and just kind of rehashing a couple of things that have happened. Okay, we've just had the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the church. Jesus Christ is alive and well and working in his church. And that power is evident. And we see this unifying event on the day of Pentecost. We see people from all cultures that are there, and they hear people magnifying God in their own languages. Then, of course, we have uh, Peter and John going into the temple. We've talked about that. Um, They see the man, been there for 40 years, which we discussed in detail last week. You remember the miracle that took place Uh, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And of course they grab him by the hands, they lift him up. A man who has never walked is not simply restored to health, but he is dancing, leaping, and cleaving to them. And a notable miracle at that, because everyone that passed through there recognized that this was the man who was crippled. So there is a question, how did this happen? By what power did this take place? And the people begin to hover around Peter and John. And immediately, what does Peter do? He lets them know it is not by our spiritual authority or our power or that we are some magnificent somebodies. No, he tells them it is Jesus Christ, the one that you killed, you nailed to a tree. God has resurrected him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and it is his name and through faith in his name that this man stands whole before you. And it goes and ties together with even the day of Pentecost. You are witnessing what the Father has promised, what he said would take place when Jesus said, whenever I go, it is to your advantage that I go away the Holy Spirit will be given. It is the promise of the Father. And greater works will you do. The Holy Spirit will come and fill his church. Jesus even likened it to saying that because we love him, because we serve him, because we belong to him, that the Holy Spirit will come and live inside us. But he said, my Father and I will manifest ourselves to them. In other words, his joy, his presence God Almighty will come and live inside his people. And now we're seeing in the book of Acts as the power of God, as the Spirit of God comes to rest on people, Jesus now is, as he promised, as a father has sent me, even now I am sending you. Go. Go and preach this good news to every living creature. Teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And know this, I will be with you always. He is never going to leave us. He is never going to forsake us. And people, those promises still apply right here today to you and to me. And we talked about faith and trusting God and believing what he said, standing upon that truth. So they take Peter and John. They're upset but they can't deny that the miracle has taken place. So they say the people are going to be upset if we do anything to them. So they sternly warn them. They command them, do not preach in the name of Jesus. Well, what do they do? They immediately start preaching in the name of Jesus because they said, you know, we need to obey God rather than we give our allegiance to man. So they get together and they pray. 
And the Bible says that whenever they pray and they ask God to stretch out his hand through the name of Jesus Christ, signs, wonders, miracles, things will take place. They would see the visible representation of Christ in his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. So they pray for this, and the Bible says the foundations of the building where they were was shaken. Shaken as you see the power of God. As God time and time again confirms to his church that he is with them. They are not going about this in their own strength or ability, nor could they. We can't do it in our own strength and our own ability. If we could do it by ourselves, the Holy Spirit would not have come. If we could have saved ourselves, Jesus Christ would not have died. So, we'll look here. Um, So they prayed. The place was shaken. Uh, It says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spake the word of God with boldness. Now we come to Acts chapter 4 and starting in verse 32. Now up to this point, we have seen the majesty of God, the miracles of God. We're seeing all kind of good things that are taking place, transformational things. We're seeing people by the thousands, 3,000 at one point, 5,000 at another point, being added to the church. And why? Because Jesus Christ is being glorified. Okay? Jesus said, The Holy Spirit will take of mine and give it to you. When he comes, he will testify of me. That's how you know the Holy Spirit's in your presence whenever Jesus Christ is being glorified. All right. So look at the church now. It says, Verse 32, it says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Important. Unity within the body. If there is one thing that will grieve the Holy Spirit, quench the Holy Spirit, if there is something that will really, really diminish that which God wants to do, and it's not because His power is diminished, it's because we are not acting in one accord with his spirit. We're not acting in in unity with him. But if there's one thing that will shut it down, it's brothers and sisters being at odds with each other. Brothers and sisters being too concerned with their own needs, their own desires, and and not really considering the, the hurts and the pains of others. We are a people, but we are also a family. We belong together. The Bible, whenever God talks about us, he talks about us being his children. And whenever we get to heaven, I know, and I'm not trying to belabor this point, we always talk about our families in heaven, who will we know, this, that, and the other. Let me tell you something. Whenever you get to heaven, even though there's the beauty of the familial relationship here, the fact is is that we will love each other, I mean, with that same love and affection that you had for anybody here. We will then be true family to one another. And so we need to start living that way in the here and now. But whenever we're not in unity, it is hard for the Spirit of God to, and I want to be careful how I phrase that, the Holy Spirit will not move in his liberty should we refuse to submit to his lordship. Let me say that again. That almost sounded intelligent. Okay, so let's try that again. The Holy Spirit will not move in his liberty until we learn to submit to his lordship, okay? An example of that is sin. We choose to live as we please and sin comes along right behind it. Okay, but these people are in one heart, one mind, one soul, okay? 
And they do not consider, it says, neither did any say that any of his own possessions that he had was his own, but they had all things in common. In other words, they were willing, as Christ commanded, to make sure that everybody was taken care of. Now, understand, you know, we have larger churches and things like that out here today, but most churches were home churches during that time. And so going from house to house in different places, they could take care of each other, and even as they grew, they still remain taking care of one another. When people are in need, when people, uh, your own brothers or sisters, they lack, the responsibility of the church was to go in there and make sure that that need was taken care of. That is our God-given mandate to do that. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the book of Genesis, you remember whenever uh, God comes to Cain and he says, where's your brother? And you remember the response, am I my brother's keeper? Now, please forgive me. Some of you understand that I'm not a very orthodox pastor, okay? But I will tell you this. That's the one time spiritually whenever he said, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. Understand? Yes, very much so. We're part of one another. You're supposed to love your brother. You're supposed to take care of him. But instead, you've murdered him just because you didn't get the approval that you thought you deserved. And it was the Lord who told him, if you did your best, you would have been accepted in the first place. Go and do what's right. Well, here is the same kind of thing. Do we love and do we care about one another? We are our brother's keeper. Now, let me give a little perspective to this. And we've shared this before. Jesus even put it this way. Let him who has two coats... Give to the one who doesn't have one. The idea is not that you become destitute and you go hungry and you do without. The idea is if you have been blessed and you have more than what you need and you have a brother or sister that does not have, give to that one so that you can help them. Let he who has food share with him who has not. That is not that your children are supposed to starve. That is if God blesses you, and he will, and you have an abundance, you share with those who do not. The church was caring. As they had been blessed, they so blessed and took care of others. Okay? Especially people, and you will see this in the books of the Bible, the, the widows and the orphans. Who's taking care of them? You will notice in the book of Acts, we're going to have a, a couple of confrontations, a couple of issues that will come up with uh, the care of widows. Certain widows not being taken care of, and that was a no-no. You made sure that you took care of people. So what I want you to see, and I guess I'm belaboring this point, was that the church actually cared about each other. Novel idea, right? But they cared about each other, and they sought to the needs of each other. All right. Verse 33. So even with that being said, it reiterates, it says, and with great power, you're going to see the Holy Spirit being brought back up a time again. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Did you hear that? Witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And you shall receive power after that, that the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses. Okay. So, they gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, they proclaimed to people that Jesus Christ is alive and well, and pow, take a look at it, okay? You could see Christ in their lives, living through them by the power of the Spirit. 
And it says, and grace, great grace was on them all. God's blessing was upon all of them. Verse 34, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. They took care of one another. For all who were uh, possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of those things that were sold, and they laid them at the apostles' feet. And then the apostles, and probably certain other ones, they distributed to each as anyone had need. They took those things, looked to the needs of the people, and made sure that people were taken care of. All right. And then Joseph. No, that's not Jose there. Okay. Who was also named Barnabas. That's the name that you're familiar with. By the apostles, whose name actually means son of encouragement. He was a Levite of the country of Cyprus. Having land, he sold it and brought that money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this is setting the ground for what we're about to study. Now, what is taking place here is people, some of them would give sacrificially, okay? And I would imagine selling things that you have is sacrificial, but understand uh, in this case, we have an individual that is greatly respected. He goes and he sells something and he takes everything. He takes everything, he lays it before him, and he said, I'm giving this to God. Whatever you need to do with it, you do with it, okay? Everything that I own belongs to the Lord, and I have this that I can share. I'm going to get, well, he sold it, and he said, now I am going to give this to the church, and church, you take care of the people. All right, great respect for this man. He's uh, one of those highly honored, somebody who's going to be with Paul through a good percentage of his ministry. Okay, let's take a look at what's about to happen here. This is going to be one of those where you're like, what? Chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So after this happens, it says there's a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife. They sold a possession. Now, I want to go back, and you're going to see this. There's nothing wrong with having your possessions. There's nothing wrong with necessarily keeping your possessions. There is... However, if you're watching people go destitute and you were able to bless them, yeah, there's a sin involved there. We must take care of one another. But by and large, if people are taken care of, what you have is yours. You can sell it. You can do whatever you want to. You can keep part of it. You can give part of it away. You can keep all of it. There is no sin there. It's yours. And you're going to hear that reiterated in just a minute, but it's what they did, the way they presented things. So he sold a possession, verse 2. And it says he kept, so Ananias kept back part of the proceeds, his wife's wife also being aware of it, and he brought a certain part and he laid it at the apostles' feet. What you're going to find out is not that he said, hey, I've got some money, you know, I sold some land, and I'm taking some of this money and I'm giving it to you. What he did was he's trying to present himself just like Barnabas. He's trying to come in there and say, I have sacrificially sold all of this and I'm giving all of it to the Lord. He is portraying himself. He's, in essence, uh, I guess you would say, almost like Jesus spoke of the Pharisees, he is doing this for the applause of men and he wants his sacrifice to seem much greater than what it is. Now, the fact is, if he just came and said that he gave something, everybody would have said, thank you, God bless you, that's wonderful. But what he is doing is he's presenting it as if he is giving everything to God. Above and beyond. And he's wanting that applause. 
And then we're going to see a consequence that seems a little rough to the outside until we talk about that in just a moment. So he, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan... So understand, this isn't just a little mistake. He's saying that the enemy is involved in this. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? It's not people that you're lying to, per se. He said, ultimately, you're lying to God. You're saying that you're giving this to God. And the fact is, is that what you're representing is is giving to God. You're not giving that, actually. Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. Now, people say, well, was it wrong for him to do that? No, Peter explains that here. He said, while it remained in your care, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not your own to control? In other words, it was still yours. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. In other words, your representation, the heart of the matter, which is what God is concerned with, The heart of the matter is that you're lying. You're trying to make yourself out to be something else. And there is corruption in that. And wanting the applause of men is exactly what got uh, the Pharisees in trouble as well. But he's telling him there was nothing wrong with you keeping part of it. You could have given part of it, would have fine. But what you're doing, the way you're representing this, you're saying, hey, I give it all to God. I'm holding nothing back from you. So after Peter says this, it says in verse 5, it says, Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. So he, he dies. Now some of you are saying, shame, we've heard this story before, but think about it. For doing this, he dies. Now many Christians, many people will look at this story and say, Boy, that seems a little harsh. He did give something. Why is he dead? Well, let's, let's go a little further and we'll come back. And the young men arose, they wrapped him up, they carried him out, and they buried him. Verse 7. Now it was about, it was three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter uh, answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much or not. See, they said, we sold it for this, and this is, we're giving it all. And she said, yeah, that's, that's what we sold it for. And then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Holy Spirit or to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell uh, down at the feet or at his feet and she breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Okay, let me give you an example. Go back in the Old Testament, Exodus, okay? And God was giving his law to people. He told them, in six days, God made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested. He said, you are not to work on the seventh day. He said, it is a holy day. It is set apart. It is created for you. And he said, to honor and to worship me, he said, do not work on this day. Anybody who works on this day will die. They'll be killed. I just simply discipline They will be killed. Shortly thereafter, God deals with sins that are unintentional. He talks about this right before what I'm about to share with you. 
God says if there is an unintentional sin, the person didn't mean to do it, it was an accidental thing. He says if, if a sin were to take place that was unintentional, they could offer a sacrifice and they could be forgiven. No big deal. However, if it is intentional, no. Right after the scripture, it says that the people are out walking around and they see this fellow over here gathering up sticks. He's just going out there picking up sticks in front of everybody. This isn't a secret. He's not hiding. He's just going and getting all the sticks that he wants to. He's picking up all these sticks. And they look at him and say, why are you working on the Sabbath day? And So they take him before Moses and they hold him. So they come in there and say, Moses, this man was picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. Guess what God told him to do? Come on, you can say it. Kill him. Stone him. Well, is that because God's so harsh and God's so unreasonable and all these kind of things? You mean God couldn't show some mercy this and that? Hold on just a minute. We just said for unintentional sin and for other things, God had made provision for people to be forgiven. The fact is, that was just right before what I'm sharing with you now. It wasn't unintentional. It was intentional. And think about it. After God had just given the command, you've got somebody who breaks the command. Now he stands before God and says, I broke your commandment, so what's going to happen? There really is only one response. Because if you turn around and you say, well, I didn't really mean it that you were going to die. I didn't really mean that, that, that there was a severe penalty for this. What do you do? God says a command is a command. He said he dies. And guess what he did by doing that? He spared a whole lot of other people from making the same mistake. You say, Shane, that still sounds a little harsh. Well, glad you said that. Let's talk about something else. How many of you remember the Ark of the Covenant, right? All right, Ark of the Covenant. You remember how Israel uh, got a little cocky. Um, they were out there. They had been sinning. They hadn't been submitting to God, but they get into a war with the Philistines. And what ends up happening is the Philistines start whooping up on them. So what they decide to do, they said, well, hold on. Let's get the ark out here. As long as we have the ark, we can't lose. The ark represented the presence of God. That doesn't mean God approves of you just because you have it there. So they bring the ark into the camp of the Israelites. Everybody begins shouting. Everybody is just absolutely screaming at the top of their lungs, so much so that the Philistines became afraid. And they said, this can only mean one thing. What is this shouting? You know, we just defeated them or won a particular battle. And they said, uh, what could this mean for them shouting? They said, it can only mean one thing. God, God has come into the camp of Israel. The ark's there. Well, they said, you know, Philistines, I don't know what's going to happen, but you need to get yourselves ready for war and let's go to battle. Okay, well, they end up going to battle, and guess what happens to the ark? The ark is taken. Taken. Now, what is interesting in this story is that the only people that are allowed to touch the ark of the covenant have to be from the Levites, okay? All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. But there are certain ones that are allowed, like the Aaronic priesthood, the uh, priest could cover up the implements and certain people could carry them. But to touch those implements unworthily meant that you died because it was holy. But what's interesting in this story also is that the Philistines touched it. 
There's nothing recorded in the scripture that the Philistines just started, you know, dying because they touched it. Now, they were judged when they opened up the ark and they looked inside of it. They were cursed with tumors. Like a plague came upon them and they wanted to get rid of it. But here's the thing that shocks me is how were they able to touch it and not die? Remember, we're held accountable for what we know. What God has revealed to us in our proximity to God. God shows great mercy to those that may not see, know, or understand. But for those that have been given much, much is required. For the Israelites to have walked with God, to know God, to have experienced Him, to know what they are dealing with, and then to disregard it. There is judgment that comes, and it comes swiftly and it comes harshly. It's not because God is is cruel. People remember this same God. It's not two separate entities here. This same God that people want to say is cruel and harsh is the same God that sent Jesus Christ to die for you and me. It's the same God who showed mercy time and time again. He's the same God that allowed his son to be tortured unmercifully before he even gets to the cross, lied about, mocked, nailed to a tree, suffering upon the cross, dying for our sins, and then resurrects him three days later. Same God. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. This God is a loving and merciful God, the most merciful. So we can't sit there and say, well, this is just harsh and this is ridiculous. No, there is a reason. When you are that close to the holy, there is the expectation that you will honor the holy. For instance, there are in the church, and we asked for it today. We said, Lord, we want to see, you know, more miracles, signs, and wonders. God still does those things, does them in abundance. God's still moving, speaking, and doing all these kinds of things. But one thing that we forget about is that whenever God starts doing those things, what is our response to the holy? The more God reveals, the more God is visibly present among his people, the more he speaks, the more he moves, the more we are held accountable for what is revealed and what is said. You say, Pastor, can you prove that? Yes, I can. Thank you for sharing. Case in point, this story. But another one. God said in the Old Testament, after their rebellion, many times he looks at Moses and says, I will send my angel with you. I cannot go with you or else I will consume you along the way. He said, because of your sin. Well, wait a minute. Isn't God everywhere present? Of course he is. Well, what is this stuff about? Well, I can't go with you because I consume you. Proximity. The closer we are to God, the more he reveals a cloud by day, a fire by night. Moses speaking, thus saith the Lord. The commandments are given. God up on a mountain, uh, I guess, uh, proclaiming his word to the people, hearing his own voice, and then to rebel against him? Yes. It's judgment. It's kind of like this. My son or my daughter does something that I don't like. I may not like it. I may have to go to them, and I might have to explain it to them. Anybody been there? Can I get a witness? Yes. However, let's say I deal with a situation with my kids that's really beginning to irritate me. My father can give you a witness on this one. But anyway, so I go to my kids, and I tell them, you know that you're not supposed to be doing this. I don't want to hear that. Oh, we'll go, we'll go to a big one. Disrespect. Disrespect being ugly. If I looked at my dad and I said, what to him? 
The next thing that would have happened, now, you can say what you want to about raising kids today. Raise them how you want to. But if I'd have looked at my dad and I'd have looked at him and said, what? Next thing I'd done, I'd say, ooh, did I fall asleep? What happened? I can tell you that would have happened. I remember the one time I called my dad Morris. He turned around and yelled at me, boy, you don't know me well enough to call me Morris. True story. True story. But what happens? What happens whenever you explain to your kids, do not do this, this is wrong, or stealing, or anything else that comes up, or violence, or looking things they shouldn't be looking at? And you look at them and you say, look, I'm explaining this to you so you will understand. Do not do this again. You may not have understood it before. You may not have understood the consequences of it before. But I'm telling you right now, these are the consequences. Don't do it. What happens when they do it again? Oh, do you just look at them and go, oh, well. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. somebody had been lit up before. Um, Oh, well, I can tell you what happens. Your kids don't respect you after that. I'm going to go do that again, is what they're thinking. But you've given them a consequence for it. Now, what you were going to do is if you would look and say, well, then they get the penalty of what happened. I was going to look at you and say, you cruel, evil, heartless people. How dare you hold your children accountable? How dare you have consequences for them? That's all God's doing too. You say, well, death is kind of extreme, unless you're the person that holds life and death in the palm of their hand. The point is, is whenever God says don't, we don't. Okay, so let's keep going. So we have this man who, uh, well, let me get through this. So the Ark of the Covenant, it winds up. The Philistines want to get rid of it. They want it out of the place, so they put it on a cart. They send it away. And anyway, at some point, David decides, I need to go get the Ark and bring it back to Jerusalem. So what he was going to do is he's got this nice pretty cart. He puts it on. He's got these people leading with it and they're going to cart it back. There's only one problem is that God said that he was supposed to be born on the shoulders of the Levites. He was supposed to be picked up and honored and that way he was to be worshipped. So David's leading them along and sure enough the oxen begin to stumble and the Ark of the Covenant begins to tip a little bit. What would you have done? Stabilize it, right? Except God says, don't you dare touch it. Shouldn't have been on that cart to start with. But the man reaches out and he touches it. And guess what happens? He's dead. You know, the Bible explains why he was killed later. It says, for his irreverent act. It's not that the person was trying to do something ugly, but... It doesn't negate that God had commanded them already, don't do it. And David wasn't even honoring God at that point either. It wasn't until later that it wound up in the house, I believe it was Obed-Edom's house, and it comes into the hands of one who was consecrated for the purposes of taking care of the ark, that his whole house was blessed. And when David saw his favor... David decides to consecrate people. He decides to get his Levites out there. He decides to do it God's way. And rather than people being smitten dead, these people reach down, grab the ark, and the next thing you know, they walk, they worship, and they sacrifice all the way back, and God was fine with it. So, coming back forward, you say, well, pastor, we went a long way around your elbow to scratch your nose. I'll say scratch my nose. 
But it comes to this. It's hard. You, you want to look and say that these things are harsh. They're not. God in the early church was setting a precedent and saying that I am holy. This is not a game. We're not going to play. You start letting people, or let's just say this, you start letting sin creep in and sin takes root and it multiplies. Sin, I have never once in my life seen sin be planted into a person's life if they did not pluck it out immediately that it did not take root and grow. It just does. It's a downward spiral. All right, let me go back to where I was. Where was I? I was in verse 11. So fear comes upon the church. There's a respect that comes after that. Now look, once again, in verse 12, we continue to see the power of God, the Holy Spirit moving in his church. It says, And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all in one accord in Solomon's porch there. Uh, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. In other words, there's this among the people. They, they love the apostles, but they're scared to get involved, okay? There's this, I guess you'd say, controversy going on there. little tension. Verse 14, it says, And the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought, now this is, this is something else that I find interesting. You're going to see this miracle. So people are being added to the church, and as human beings are, they have needs. So they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So some people, and I, I want to be careful. As a matter of fact, I watch my time because we've got to stop. Remember what we were saying about Peter beforehand and a lot of things that happen in the church today. I hate to say it, but in the church, in certain places, not all churches, not all denominations, I'm not saying that. You can see God in a lot of different places, and he's there. And this is not to say that I am infallible, because I am. I am a human being, and I will do my best to interpret the word of God, but that does not mean that I will be errorless or inerrant in everything that I say. I'm just doing my best. But I can tell you from observation, one of the places where the church has failed, especially with the power of God, is that we have taken a glory that is not ours. And we have taken that from Jesus Christ and we apply it to ourselves. God in his bountiful, in his wonderful wisdom, in his glorious power, sometimes reaches into this world and does the most amazing miracles, gives the greatest revelation, you know, uh, ex helping us understand his truth in ways that, that we have never even understood up to this point. And then what people will do, rather than pointing back to Christ and saying, you know what, Jesus Christ has done this, not me. We wind up having everybody honor us and think ourselves something special and something better than what we are. 
And people, whenever we take his glory and we claim his power as our own, that it is ours, not given by the Spirit and the Holy Spirit, not uh, distributing as he wills, people, we're overstepping. We're actually sinning whenever we do that. And what you see in Peter here beforehand when the miracles take place, don't look at us as if by our holiness, our own power, this person's made whole. He said it's by, because of Jesus. Now, we do stand as representatives of Jesus. We are ambassadors for Christ. Absolutely. Does God use us and does he speak through us? Yes. Absolutely he does. We are his church. We are his body. But at the same time, it is not ours. It is his. And the glory must be given where it deserves, and that is to Christ. Now, you will see Peter as he's walking along. These people have brought out sick. They, they've laid them there, hoping that the, the very shadow of Peter would touch them. And were miracles take place? Absolutely. Were there times like, you know, we talk about prayer claws and things like that. Does that happen when garments are distributed? God sometimes absolutely will use those things. But please remember, even though God is pointing people, now you think about it from the day of Pentecost, well, you can go back to the uh, New Testament and even to the Old Testament. God would put his spirit upon people, and even with the prophets, and I want to be careful how I say this, but how many times have we looked in the Old Testament whenever somebody had a need? We can even think about Elijah. We can think about Samuel. We can think about even Elisha in that matter. But what they would do is say, person's got a problem. There's a prophet in Israel. There's a prophet in Israel. You need to go talk to the prophet. Prophet was somebody that God was speaking through his word. Behold, the word of the Lord came to Samuel or Jeremiah or whoever. And were these people representatives for God? Absolutely. But I still want you to remember just like whenever, uh, what was it? Naaman, the leper came. And what was his name? Gehazi? Was that, was that his uh, servant? Yeah, the prophet's servant. You remember whenever everything was said and done, Gehazi ran out there and wanted to take the money. And the prophet had already told him, said, nope, this is God. You can keep your money. Gehazi goes out there and gets it. And whenever he comes back, what does the prophet say? The leprosy that he had will be yours. It's going to be yours for the rest of your life. Why? Why? Yes, the prophet is a man of God. Yes, the prophet stands there to be a, uh, a mouthpiece and an instrument of God's grace, just like Peter and these other things. And yes, the power of God and the Spirit of God rest upon to where people can look at you and say, okay, this is somebody who, who is revealing, helping, teaching, doing something for God. Okay? So there is that respect that is there, just like I have respect for you as children of God. God can use you just as quick as he can use me. But in every situation, whether prophet, whether priest, whether apostle, whoever it may be, if you look in this book and you look at their lives, the first thing they do is they turn the glory right back to Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, angels. Whenever you see angels move and do something, people will start bowing down. The angels will say, get up. Do not do that. I am a fellow servant just like you are. So whenever you see these things happening with Peter, don't sit there and assume, well, Peter, Peter's just the greatest person to ever walk the earth. Peter is an apostle upon which God is showing his stamp of approval and is using him for his glory that people may come and experience 
Christ. Amen? Okay, let's see here if there's anything else. Okay, and they were healed. All right, tonight, any questions? All right, let's pray, and we'll, I'll tell you what, let's do this. Does anybody need to be anointed tonight? Anybody need special prayer tonight? I want to make sure. Anybody? Absolutely. Come on down. Deacons, come on down. And uh, anybody else after they come down, if you want to pray, come on. There's a pretty lady coming down here, too. You familiar with her? A little bit? You've met. What's your daddy's name? John. All right. Sounds like yours. Father God, you told us, is there anyone sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church, the elders of the church and let them anoint the sick with oil. And you said, Father, to pray the prayer of faith. And you said, if they have committed any sins, they would be forgiven and that you would heal the sick. Well, Father, we come standing in for my brother and for his father, praying for John. He's dealing with cancer. And Father God, you are well able to not only heal cancer, but Father, you are able to heal us completely of all things. So right now, Father, as a symbol of your spirit and of your touch, Father, I anoint my brother. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, because of Christ Jesus, because you are our Lord, Father, we lay our hands as your hands are being put upon him by your Spirit. In the name, above every name, we proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, the name of our Lord and our God, because of Jesus Christ, because of his suffering, because of his death, because of his shed blood, and yes, Lord, because of his resurrection, we ask you to heal, heal John right now. Father, to give him grace, to give him strength, to lift him up, and God, to breathe into John right now. Breathe into him the breath of life. And we ask you, Lord, for a miracle. We ask you, Lord, for grace. We ask for the power of God, the healing virtue of Jesus Christ. Father, to be received into his life, and Father, for him to receive your touch. Bless him today. Help him today. Bless my brother, his wife, and his family. Keep John in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, saints, if you'd stand with us. We got choir practice tonight, right? Got to get people to choir practice. The Lord bless you. Father, keep these that have been here tonight. Pour out your spirit upon them. Help us, Lord, to serve you faithfully. Jesus Christ, be glorified in us all. May we never, ever miss an opportunity to love for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with God.